Welcome. This is Listening to Hope. The podcast celebrates recipients of Ontario Rett Syndrome Association's Hope Fund, Canada's only fund dedicated to Rett Syndrome research in the country. Since 2014, when it was created, the fund has awarded over $500,000 in research grants to find a cure, a treatment for Rett Syndrome. Today, we are talking to a Hope Fund recipient, Kerry Delaney. He's a University of Victoria professor in the Department of Biology. It was an accident. That's how Kerry got involved in studying Rett Syndrome. Around 10 years ago, Kerry was working on the biology of invertebrates like frogs when a colleague down the hall met him about a grant the colleague was trying to put in for studying Rett Syndrome. Kerry read it because he was a neuroscientist and his colleague wasn't. Kerry remembers reading that grant and finding it to be an interesting problem to solve. The interesting problem being that it was postnatal development, so it, you know, wasn't cells dying, and and then I realized, geez, this is going to probably involve synaptic connections. And so I actually I started to get interested in it. What made it so interesting? It was not something where the the cells were dying, or uh, like in Parkinson's or or Alzheimer's. Here was one in which it was a problem with the connections weren't being made properly, and that that seemed like something that I would want to work on because it was, it's something that seemed fixable. And this was well before we knew about uh, how you could reverse ret in mice by reintroducing the gene. And that uh, it was still a theory back then that you could actually reverse the effects, but uh, it seemed to me that this was. It was going to be something that that you could probably fix, and so that is what really interested me in it. To be honest, it wasn't about patience, and it wasn't about because um, I didn't know any at that time. I was just this seems like a fascinating developmental problem. Kerry is one of the few scientists in Canada working on the brain physiology of Rett syndrome. He's using special instruments to record the electrical properties of neurons. Which will tell us something about the way they function. Now there are billions of neurons in the brain. The question is, how does he figure out which neurons are affected by Rett syndrome and which ones are not? We have a way to identify in live tissue which neurons are expressing the mutant MECP2 and which ones are expressing the uh, wild type or normal MECP2. We have a, a tag, a fluorescent tag that we can. And that's because we have a mouse, a line of mice that um, that basically the wild types neurons glow green, and the mutated neurons don't glow. And so, under a fluorescence microscope, we can look at at them as individuals, and that's how we're able to differentiate between the mutant and the wild type. That's what I've been doing somewhat differently than than most, putting all of my effort into working with the female mice that are the better model for the female patients. So, Katie. Why are you using mouse models to study something that affects humans? At the level of single cells, all the mammals are, are are pretty much the same. It's really hard to tell tell the difference between a mouse cell and a human cell. If you're looking at uh, at a single cell, or you're looking at pairs of cells that connect together, the basic principles of how and 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 mechanisms by which neurons connect to each other has been around for. Millions and millions and millions of years. We're not special, really, in in the way in which our neurons 
individually connect together. We're special in having or in having many, many more neurons and many, many more connections. But the actual physiology of connectivity in a mouse brain, certainly at the level that I'm interested in studying at the single cell synaptic level, is remarkably similar. There's something else, isn't it? The brain is made up of the brain of the patients is made up of this mosaic of cells, some of which are mutated and some of which aren't, and you, you can't differentiate where the problem is coming from or even what, what exactly has, has caused the failure, the failure of connectivity unless you can take the cells out and put them into a, a chamber and, and put an electrode in them and, and interrogate them as individuals. And we can do that with mice. And that's where mouse models are so useful. It's very hard with humans to, to look at mechanisms. You can describe what you're seeing, but you have to be able to manipulate chemistry. You have to be able to manipulate physiology in order to find out what, what things are causal to the dysfunction. And you can't do that with humans. I'm, I'm trying to look at how one neuron connects to another neuron. I'm trying to study the way in which the, the, this MECP2, this mutation, that causes the red syndrome, um, how it affects those interconnections between individual neurons. And there's no technique that we can use in, in, in humans that allows us to look at how one neuron is connected to another. In fact, Kerry has spoken to parents and families living with Rett syndrome about how he studies Rett syndrome using mice. I've actually found it very easy to talk to them because they're always interested. They're interested. They're, they're searching. It seems they're they're interested in finding out what what's happening and are very open to, to learning as a as a group. To, they, they've been really a, a pleasure to interact with. I, I remember giving one talk where I, I said, "Well, I, all I could talk about are the mice," and and I just showed them how the mice they, they their motor symptoms are are are, are similar to the. Some of the symptoms that they have, um, that, that their children have, and uh, and and I show them pictures and movies. That was probably the best way for them to begin to understand that, that these mouse models are actually useful for for understanding this, because they could see some of the so many of the similar uh, physical traits. Not, of course, not we can't not cognitive, and but but the physical motor similarities between these mouse models and the and their children. When Kerry applied for the Hope Fund. It was during a critical time in his research. What I asked for was mainly some money to breed mice, to, to, to create some special combinations of, of gene, the genes in, in, in combination with the MECB2. And the money arrived at the time when I had run out of money to keep the colony going. So if, if I hadn't got the, the $25,000 from Orsa at the time that I did, I might have fallen out of red research. I might have basically just had to say I can't continue. It was, uh, wasn't was a lot of money, but it came at just the right moment to, to get me over the hump and, and so that I was able to get uh, larger funding from the International Red Syndrome Foundation in the United States to, to, to just keep going. Kerry hopes that the funding for Red Syndrome in Canada takes on a national scale. We don't have a national Red, any sort of a national Red Syndrome a foundation or, or organization, I think, hinders us. Ontario is big, but it's not the entire country. And so the ability to really generate funding and to, you know, to, to create coordinated efforts and 
bring teams together. I think it's hampered by the fact that we have a few provincial organizations that are uh, that are mostly designed appropriately to help parents and families, but we don't have any real national level enterprise that's directed at RET. And I think that's something that uh, uh, really prevents us from, from going to the next step. Speaking of research, any advice for those planning on embarking on a research career? Don't think too much about the future. If the research is interesting you, you're young, you've got lots of time in front of you, just follow a passion and and uh, as long as, as the research is, is, in, is enjoyable, then, then keep doing it. Don't worry about whether or not you're going to get a great job or where this is going to lead or, or whatever. I never worried about that. Uh, it was just always interesting to me and I just kept plugging away at it because I couldn't think of anything else to do. And that's the one piece of advice if I have to encapsulate it is, is, is you know, and say, well, you know, I don't know if I should be a researcher. And I said, well, you will know that you should be a researcher when you can't think of doing anything else. <laughs> if something else seems more appealing, then, then you should be doing that. But if you find yourself thinking I can't imagine doing anything else, then that's the sign that don't worry about the future and just and just do it. There's just too much worrying about what's, what's tomorrow going to bring up? Am, am I going to have a good job? If you put passion into it, whatever you do, it's probably going to work out. I spend a lot of my time trying to reassure young people that that things will work out, that, that uh, things were bad in the past. It just seems worse now because the internet tells you that everything's bad. <laughs> it's not, not that much worse than it ever was, and, and to just have some faith. Any last words, Kerry, before we end this podcast? I wish I was in the labs uh, having fun because uh, it is a lot of fun to be a, to be a scientist. When you get to talk to a, a really bright graduate student, and the two of you get just tied into a problem. It's, I don't know, it's, it's what, it's, it, it makes the day worthwhile. Uh, you can forget about all the, the administrative minutiae that you have to deal with and, and just let your mind really work on something. That's, that's a joy. It's surprising to other people. They, they always say, oh, gee, you have to go to work on Sunday? And, and, and first of all, I don't have to. <laughs> always a joy to, to, uh, to see new trainees accomplish something, discover something new. There's nothing quite like being the first person to see something that no one else has seen. It's, it's uh, an adventure. Thank you for listening to Hope with Kerry Delaney, a Hope Fund recipient.